Lord, we really have nothing else to put our hope on except the blood of your son and his righteousness that he has merited, earned on behalf of all who hope in him. Our Father, we pray that tonight we would take encouragement from this gospel truth and that as we meditate on your word, we would not only be encouraged ourselves, but be strengthened to encourage one another all the more as we see the day of Christ drawing near. Work, O Lord, according to your mercy. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you so much for giving up your Sunday evening to come out to hear the word of God. It's so good to see you. That was such a wonderful meal. I've uh, enjoyed meeting several of you. Um, We have just come out of the Christmas season, and so my wife and I this year decided that we were going to do something a little bit different with respect to gifts. Usually I get her something, she doesn't like it, she gets me something, I don't like it. So what we decided this year is to buy our own Christmas gifts. We each had an allowance, and so I went to Men's Warehouse, and I bought a belt. Uh, My wife said, how much was that? I said it was $80, to which she replied, that's a huge waste. (laughs) That's a huge waste. Pastor Harris and I first met in South Carolina several years ago when he was training to be a pastor. He was uh, very young at the time and uh, very inexperienced. Uh, On one occasion, he was assigned to go to uh, the hospital to make a visit uh, for one of the members of the church who was um, needing a uh, blood transfusion uh, as... uh, Providence would have it when he arrived at the hospital, uh, the medical staff was running around frantically because they had lost the man's records, which I don't know uh, how that happened, but they asked uh, Pastor Harris if he would just to stay with the patient while they went and searched for the records. And the doctor came back into the room and uh, Kendall said, well, uh, good news, bad news, what do you want first? And the doctor said, well, the bad news. And he said, well, the bad news is that uh, the gentleman passed away. And the doctor said, well, what is the good news? And Kendall said, well, as he was dying, he was just encouraging me, and he he was just trying to build me up. And the doctor said, well, what was he saying? And Kendall said, well, he just kept repeating, be positive, Be positive. Be positive. (laughs) You're a rough crowd. (laughs) Be positive. (laughs) So you're familiar with the children's game Marco Polo. I wasn't familiar with it until I... Uh, became an adult. We didn't have a pool growing up, but it's a, it's a pretty simple game where a group of children will be in the pool. One of them will close their eyes and they will say Marco, and then they will listen for the other children, and then they will say Polo, and then you will move in the direction of the voices uh, and try to capture the person just based upon what you hear. Let me once again please pray. Father in heaven, please fill me with your Holy Spirit, fill me with joy, 
Fill me, Lord, with compassion for the people to whom I am about to speak and enable me, dear Lord, to communicate your truth in a way which will be not only encouraging them, but, Lord, will be convicting for them so that they might obey your command to be encouragers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the year 2008, Anna and I sent off our oldest son, Parker, from New York to Georgia. He went there for two reasons. Number one, he went there because he wanted to play one season of football his senior year. As a homeschooler in New York, he would not have been allowed to do that. And so he wanted to go to a high school in the South to play football. And the other reason why he wanted to go there is so that he might become a Georgia State resident uh, because he wanted to go to the University of Georgia. If you become a resident, the, uh, the tuition is a lot cheaper. And so we sent him to live with Anna's parents for his senior year. When he got there on the football team, uh, he discovered that it was going to be a little bit tougher than he thought it was going to be, and it was he, he was not doing too well at the beginning. And so as a good father, I purchased for him three used, inexpensive DVDs, Rocky, Rudy, and The Pursuit of Happiness, and I mailed them to him all at the same time. If you haven't seen any of these movies, you only need to watch one. They are all the same movie. It is a movie about someone who is not receiving any encouragement from the outside, and they have to pick themselves up and press on, reaching from within, picking themselves up by their own bootstraps and pressing on. Rocky, Rudy, The Pursuit of Happiness. Unfortunately, I find that in the 21st century evangelical church, oftentimes we treat one another as if the other person is Rocky Balboa. Uh, we treat them as though they are going to, by themselves, without any help, get up off of the mat and to press on. But God, in his wisdom, has communicated through his word, and what he has said is, you need to be talking to one another, and as you are talking to one another, you are to be encouraging one another and building one another up. In fact, there is an imperative, a command in First Thessalonians chapter 5, that we are to encourage one another and to build one another up. That is going to be our text for this evening, and so I would ask that you would please take your copy of the scriptures, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and listen as I read verses 9 through 11, and then we will go back and take it apart. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but by contrast to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, 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 here's the command, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. All right, let me take you through uh, the text here and just note several things about it. Uh, first of all, I find it uh, very ironic and I find it very artful on the part of the Apostle Paul that although he tells them to encourage one another, he commands them to encourage one another, did you notice that in the process of telling them to encourage one another, he actually encourages them? Uh, with that little phrase at the end, 
as you are doing. Now, here is your command. You are to encourage one another. And by the way, you are already doing that. You're doing a good job. Just keep it up. So there is encouragement in the command to encourage. Another thing that I want you to note from the text is that to be encouraging, to be encouraging uh, is to be godly. Uh, to be godly, to be godlike. Um, it is a Trinitarian doctrine of encouragement. The Bible teaches us in Romans chapter 5, verse 15, that God is the God of encouragement and endurance, endurance and encouragement, so that if we are encouragers, we are like our Heavenly Father. How do we know that we are sons of our Father? Well, if we look like our Father. Well, what does our Father look like? Well, he looks like an encourager. He encourages. Also, there is a, a, an aspect in which the doctrine of encouragement uh, is Trinitarian in that it is an aspect of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The word for encourage here is the Greek word uh, parakaleo, which, by the way, that is the... Um, correct mispronunciation of that word, and uh, that word is similar to or is a derivative of the word that we see in the upper room discourse used by Christ when he speaks about the coming of the Holy Spirit, who is the comforter, as it says in the old King James, but he is the paraclete or paracletos. So when we are encouraging, we are like the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit comes alongside and encourages. But the main thing that I want you to see from the text in this Trinitarian aspect of being godly or like God is that this is rooted in, it is grounded in, it is propelled by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we could just take it apart phrase by phrase. He starts off by telling these people that they are not going to hell. If that is the only thing that I told you this evening, then you would be very encouraged, for God has not destined us for wrath. There are some people who are destined for wrath. There are some people who will be eternally separated from God in eternal conscious punishment. Paul says, you, the believers, the church, Thessalonica, you are not among those people. God has not destined us for wrath. But by contrast, what has he destined us for? It is to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And how is it that we obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ? Well, verse 10 explains that. It says that Jesus Christ died for us, that is, he died in our place, so that, and then now he uses two extremes, and he speaks of it, first of all, euphemistically, but he's, he's speaking here of extremes, and he says who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Take one extreme or another, whether you live or whether you die, and everything else in between. The main thing is that you are going to be with him. Why? Because the Lord Jesus Christ died for us. Now, the next word, I would argue, is the most important word in the entire text with respect to encouragement. Notice that verse 11 does not say, encourage one another, but verse 11 says, therefore encourage one another. In other words, 
we are not just encouraging one another, but there is a reason why we are encouraging one another, and it is in light of the fact that our sins are forgiven, and the reason that our sins are forgiven is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has died in our place. Or to put it another way, the gospel is of first importance. And so if we approach the doctrine of encouragement simply by saying, here's what you need to do to build one another up, really it becomes nothing more than a pat on the back or a halftime speech or how to win friends and influence people or it becomes a motivational speech or it becomes flattery or manipulation. It becomes a Tony Robbins seminar and actually it is of no value. It is hollow. It is empty. However, if you attach the gospel to it, and this is what drives Paul's doctrine of encouragement. Listen, brothers and sisters, you were on your way to hell, but you are no longer on your way to hell because Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, has come along and he has suffered the wrath of God in your place and he is risen and you believe in him. So at this point, there's going to be ups and there's going to be downs. And so whether you live or whether you die or anything in between, well, these things are important, but ultimately... You are going to be with him in heaven, and in light of the fact that you are forever going to be with him in heaven, therefore, 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 encourage one another or edify one another, build one another up. You see, we can say that ultimately... Anything that happens to one who is saved is actually encouraging. Because ultimately, we know the last chapter of the book. Uh, ultimately, everything uh, can be encouraging, and we, we can encourage fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, because ultimately, they're going to be in heaven. Conversely, I don't know of anything which would be meaningful which I can say to someone who is unsaved, who will ultimately be in hell, which I consider to be genuinely encouraging. The pilot comes on and says, I'm sorry, all of the engines are shot. We are going to crash. What can you say to the person that is sitting beside you, which would be encouraging? Wasn't that beverage refreshing? Like, there's nothing that you can say. We are going to die. What do you say to the person who is ultimately going to be in hell, which is of encouragement? Nothing. What do you say to the person who ultimately is going to be in heaven? Anything, because that person ultimately is going to be with the Lord. And so, when we take this gospel and we attach it to the doctrine of encouragement, it gives it teeth. It gives it meaning. And so, if we look at encouragement... Objectively, objectively, there is no reason why we should be discouraged. Do you remember that hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus? And I used to think that it was so hokey, that one line that says, we should never be discouraged. I'm thinking, well, we should. There are times when we should be discouraged. No, I think what Paul is saying here is, we should never be discouraged. Ridged. Why? What do we have in Christ? We have the Bible. We have Christ himself that we have been joined to. We have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We have the church. We have one another. 
we, we, we have redemption. We have the forgiveness of sins. We have adoption. We have heaven as our home. With all of those things firmly in place and unchangeable, we should never be discouraged. Therefore, there is no, listen to me, there is no valid reason for a Christian ever to be discouraged. However, Christians do become discouraged and God, in kindness, knows that we become discouraged. And so what he does is, he says, you people need to be talking to one another. And in light of the gospel, you need to be encouraging one another and building one another up. Why does this need to be commanded? Well, I think it's because we are fallen and we are finite and we live in a fallen world, and we become discouraged. We, we shouldn't, but we do. Why? We're living in a discouraging world. Uh, we have an enemy. We have an adversary, the devil, roaming about, seeking whom he may devour. We have the flesh. Uh, you are a liar. I am a liar. And the person that we lie to the most is ourselves, and we are with ourselves all the time, and we... And Paul says, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. We are constantly telling ourselves lies all the time. We live in a world of lies. We are people of unclean lips, and we dwell amidst the people of unclean lips. If you watch the media, and it doesn't matter what channel you watch, you are going to be discouraged. If you watch entertainment, you are going to be spiritually discouraged. We are in church tonight, and we are singing about the solid rock, and we are enjoying fellowship in a very wholesome atmosphere, and you're hearing the word of God preached. You're going to get up tomorrow, and you're going to go to your school, or you're going to go to your job, and the person in the cubicle, or in the desk, or in the whatever it is that you're doing, who is beside you, is going to talk about what they have been doing this weekend. They're going to be taking God's name in vain. They're going to be throwing profanity all over the place. They have no regard for God whatsoever. And if you listen to it every day, all day, you are going to be discouraged. Discouragement also comes in the form of sickness. When someone is sick and they are down they are discouraged. And then there's that nebulous monster we like to call depression. I've been through it three times in my life. It is horrific. I would take any physical sickness in the world compared to depression. It is that awful. It, it, Job put it best when he said, man born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. We live in a fallen world where, by definition, things are discouraging. People are discouraging toward us. We are our own worst enemy, and the devil wants us to be discouraged. It's a discouraging world. So, putting it all together, I haven't said anything that is, is profound or complex up to this point. It's pretty simple up to this point. Uh, we, we, we have no reason to be discouraged, but we live in a fallen world and therefore we do get discouraged. And God has said you need to talk to one another and encourage one another and build one another up in light of the gospel. Since that is true, we could probably just dismiss right now by me saying to you, now therefore, go and encourage one another. But why is it that many people, in fact, in my experience, most people 
do not encourage. They are not good at it, and they don't practice it. I think there's several reasons. One reason why people do not encourage as they should is because they have no idea how. And the reason they don't know how is because they have never been encouraged themselves. Many years ago, maybe over 20 years ago, I was preaching on a Sunday morning and I was using an illustration and my son Parker, who was probably about eight or nine years old at the time, was sitting in the front row. The sermon that day was upon God's approval of his son Jesus and God expressing his approval of his son Jesus and saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And so what I did is I brought my son Parker up to the platform and I looked at him and he was just a little boy and I said to him, Parker, I want you to know that I love you and I want you to know that I am pleased with you. And I am so glad that you are my son. But Parker, not only do I want you to know this, I want all of those people out there to know that I love my son and that I am pleased with my son. And then I had him sit down and I preached the rest of the sermon. It was just a minor illustration at the very beginning of the sermon. I'm standing at the door shaking hands as the people are leaving. And there was an elderly woman in her mid-80s who was leaving the church that day. This is a woman that was very unemotional, and that day as she's walking out, she is weeping, tears are rolling down her cheeks, and she shook my hand and she said, Pastor, when you brought that boy up there on the platform, that broke my heart, because my mother and my father both lived and died, and never once did either one of them ever once tell me that they loved me. So it would be difficult for you to be an encourager if you have never been encouraged. For some people, they don't encourage because it doesn't come natural to them. That, that's just not their temperament. Some people do not encourage because they have seen abuses of encouragement in the form of manipulation and flattery. Some people do not encourage because they are so hurting themselves that they can never think beyond themselves to encourage other people. They're just looking to be recipients of encouragement, but they don't give it to other people. Uh, to you, I would say this. Remember that never has anyone ever been in more agony than the Son of God was hanging upon that cross for six hours, bearing the wrath of God upon himself, bearing in his body our sins upon the tree. And yet Jesus used what few words he had on the cross to do what? To encourage others. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Woman, behold your son. John, take care of my mother. Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Christ was hurting, yet he encouraged others. There are other people who do not encourage because if they encourage, by definition, they will feel that the other person has the upper hand on them and they are so jealous of that person they would never acknowledge that the other person has done something well or right for to do that then would make me look bad. And there are 
other reasons why people don't encourage, but it doesn't matter what the reasons are. The reasons don't matter. We are commanded by God to encourage one another and to build one another up. And I think that I have spent enough time building a case as to why this is important, given the fact that we are the body of Christ and we're living in a discouraging world. So, what does it look like? Well, let me tell you a Bible story. There's a guy by the name of Joseph, although you probably don't know him by the name Joseph. He appears first in Acts chapter 4, verse 36. You probably know him by the name Barnabas. Now, who is this guy, Barnabas? Well, he is a Levite. He's born on the island of Cyprus. He moves to Jerusalem. Uh, he becomes a Christian, and he becomes wealthy. The reason we know he becomes wealthy is he has a piece of property. He sells that property and gives it to the church. I'll say more about that in just a moment. But he was so encouraging in the early church that the disciples, the apostles, either changed his name or gave him a nickname, which was in line with his character, which was what? Barnabas, which by interpretation means son of encouragement. How did Barnabas demonstrate encouragement in the early church? Well, let me give you four examples. First of all, as I said, he helped the church financially. There's a problem in the church. The widows need feeding. Uh, there are needs there. Uh, the Christians were being ostracized, and there was financial need. And so what does he do? He has a piece of property, he sells the property, and he gives all the money to the church. That was an encouragement. Next, we see encouragement in the life of Barnabas as he was dealing with Saul of Tarsus. You remember Saul of Tarsus. He's there, he's witnessing the martyrdom of Stephen, and he was on his way from Jerusalem to Damascus with letters to arrest Christians and to bring them back. To Jerusalem. He, he is a Christ hater. He is a Christian killer. And he is on his way to Damascus. He is hit with a bright light. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? He goes into the city. You'll remember in Damascus, Ananias comes to him. He prays for him. He receives his sight. And then for a short time, Paul preaches the gospel. And he's not even called Paul at this point, but he preaches the gospel in Damascus. And then in order to escape, He's put into a basket, he's let down over the wall, and for the next three years, Paul is in Arabia. Not Saudi Arabia, but Arabia which is near Damascus. And so Paul says, you know what, I would like to become acquainted with the mothership. I would like to be acquainted with the Christians in Jerusalem. So he goes back to Jerusalem and he says, hey, where's the church? Nobody would let him come to church because they thought it was a trick. He who formerly had been a persecutor is up to no good. He just wants to get in for the purpose of perhaps having us all put to death. By the way, side point, having nothing to do with my sermon. If you ever go to become a member of a church and in your initial interview to become a member, you are rejected for membership you are in good company for the greatest Christian who ever lived was not accepted as a member of the first church that he tried to go to. But that's another sermon for another day. For tonight, how is it that Paul gets 
an audience with and gets to minister in and through the church in Jerusalem. It is through the son of encouragement, Barnabas, who goes to the apostles and tells them he is one of us. He has seen the Lord. He is a real Christian. And so what does Paul do? He goes in and for two weeks he ministers in and among the church in Jerusalem. And it is from there that he is sent on to Antioch. Now I hope that your ecclesiology, that is your doctrine of the church, is good enough to know that you don't, you don't just become a missionary without the endorsement of a local church. You understand that Paul does not become a missionary unless the church at Jerusalem endorses him, but they don't endorse him unless Barnabas goes to bat for him. Notice what happens next with Barnabas. Christians were leaving Jerusalem. They were making their way to a place called Antioch. Antioch is the place where they were first called Christians. Back in Jerusalem, they want to know, is this real? Is this movement of the Lord up in Antioch one which is, which is, which is viable? And so what do they do? They send the son of encouragement, Barnabas, to Antioch. And in Acts chapter 11, verse 23, this is the quintessential definition of encouragement. It says, when he, Barnabas, came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. That's what encouragement is. You are looking around, you spot the grace of God. When you spot the grace of God, it makes you happy. And when you're happy, then you open your mouth and you encourage people to press on in the grace of God. That is exactly what Barnabas did for those Christians in Antioch. Fourth example of how Barnabas was an encourager. You'll remember that the Holy Spirit puts his hand on Paul and Barnabas to be sent out in Acts chapter 13 as missionaries. And as they go, they take a young man with them by the name of Mark or John Mark. They leave Antioch and they go down to Cyprus and they move across the island from the east to the west. And then they go north across the sea up into what is known as the Roman region of Galatia. And as they are going, they are planting churches. And for some inexplicable reason, and we are never told the reason, in Acts chapter 13, verse 13, it says that Mark decides to quit and go home. He's gone. Well, Paul and Barnabas continue north. They plant churches. They revisit those churches as they are moving south. They make their way back over to Antioch. Then they realize that there's this crisis over in Jerusalem because they're having to decide whether or not Gentiles need to be circumcised in order to be saved. So they go over to Jerusalem, and they're at what is known as the Jerusalem Council. They get that settled, and then they come back to Antioch, and they are at Antioch for many days. And Paul says to Barnabas, hey, you know what? I think it's a good idea that we go back into Galatia and we revisit the churches that we have planted there. And Barnabas says, you know what? I think it's a good idea that we go back and visit those churches in Galatia that we have planted and that we encourage them. Let me get John Mark. And Paul says, absolutely not. No way. He is a quitter. He quit on us the first time. I cannot risk taking him a second time. And the dispute between Paul and Barnabas was so sharp that they split up and they went different directions. And Paul took a new partner by the name of Silas and Barnabas took his cousin, John Mark, and they went down to Cyprus and they went their different ways. Now, 
who was right, who was wrong. I'm not here to settle that dispute this evening, but I will say this. If, if I had to make a decision, I think probably Paul was the one that was in the right. And the reason that I will say this is because the author, Luke, follows the journey of Paul, not the journey of Barnabas. And secondly, we are told that the church at Antioch, uh, in sending Paul and Silas out, commended them to the grace of God. But I'm not here to solve that dispute this evening. But here's what I can tell you. Paul gets to the end of his life. And in the final piece of literature that he writes, which is 2 Timothy, in the last chapter of that book, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, Paul makes a request of young Timothy. And he says, bring Mark or John Mark to me. Now, Paul is in a Roman dungeon at this point. Bring John Mark to me. For he is profitable, not just profitable, but he is profitable to me for ministry. Which begs the question, how does this guy go from being a quitter to being one that Paul, the greatest Christian, the greatest missionary that ever lived, is requesting in his final days? It happened through the doctrine of of encouragement through the instrumentality of the son of encouragement, Barnabas. And you say, well, aren't these nice Bible stories? Friends, this is more than nice Bible stories. Understand what is at stake here, okay? I enjoy reading Romans and First and Second Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and First and Second Thessalonians and First and Second Timothy and Titus and Philemon. I like to read those books. But do you understand that unless Barnabas solidifies Paul in the Jerusalem church, Paul does not get sent out to be a missionary and he doesn't write those books. Paul never becomes the great apostle Paul without the church at Jerusalem. And Paul doesn't get the church at Jerusalem without the doctrine of encouragement through Barnabas. It's really important. You know what else is really important? There are four records of our Lord's life. Matthew, Luke, John, and Mark. Roughly a quarter of the information that we have about the life of Jesus was written by the quitter, Mark, who left the ministry, who left the mission field. How does he go from being a quitter to being one who is entrusted by the Holy Spirit for eternity to inscribe what happened in the life of Jesus Christ? It happened through the doctrine of encouragement, Barnabas coming alongside John Mark and building him up in the faith. Oh, this is a big deal. We're talking about a big deal here tonight. A big deal. So what I'm about to tell you You might think that I'm trying to be funny or that I'm exaggerating. I am not. I'm not trying to be funny at all. I will just, 
I will just say it, and I'm so glad that there are so many children and young people in the room right now. I want you to, to please listen to me. I've been in the church for, I'm going to be 62 in, in, in March. I've been in the church my entire life. I have known countless young people and children who were absolute knuckleheads, but I have never in my life ever known a child that was worse than me. I was so bad. I, I can remember as a, as a, as a, as a, as a five-year-old when we're, we're on the stage and we're preparing for the Christmas play, and it's Saturday afternoon before the Christmas play, and, and here's me, and I'm standing there in my bathrobe or whatever, and I'm supposed to walk over to the microphone, you know, and, you know, and the virgin shall conceive, whatever, whatever my line was, and I walk up to this microphone, and it's, it's like one of those big silver microphones with a grill on it, and, and, and I, hello, hello, and I realized my voice was amplified, and it was funny, the first 10 or 12 times, but I wouldn't stop to the point where the teachers had to call my father and get him to come and take me home. And on the night of the Christmas play, when all of my friends were on the stage, I sat there because I couldn't be controlled. My aunt died. She was almost 99 years old. She died in 2014 over in western Pennsylvania, a little town in western Pennsylvania, Dubois. That's where I was raised in the Dubois Christian Missionary Alliance Church. And there was, you know, you get to be 99, there, you know, not too many people coming to your funeral. Uh, so there's just a handful of people there. And one of the people that was there was one of my Sunday school teachers when I was a little boy. So I'm standing there with my plate, you know, eating my macaroni salad, and this woman walks, but she doesn't really walk, she just kind of shuffles over to me, and, and she looks at me, and she points her finger at me, and she says, you are the worst child that ever attended this church. And you're thinking, okay, and what's going to follow is, but I'm so sorry you lost your aunt, or the Lord has saved you, and now you're a pastor. I kid you not, she walks up to me, you're the worst child that ever attended this church. And she walks away, just like that. That's, that was half a century after the fact, this woman is using what few steps she's got left on planet Earth to tell me how horrible I was. When I was in the sixth grade, Mrs. Fischel had her desk at the front of the class, and the students, as they should be, were lined up in rows. My desk was right beside hers, looking out at the rest of the students, because I could not be released into general population. I was horrible. I, I could not be controlled. And then something really strange happened. When I was 16 years old, God got a hold of my heart and he broke my heart and he gave me a love for Jesus Christ to the point where I didn't want to do anything else except for read the Bible 
and listen to Christian music and serve the Lord and be with God's people and serve in the church. I was totally consumed with Jesus Christ at the age of 16. Went from being horrible to loving Christ with all of my heart. Regeneration. If, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. But I had a problem. My problem is that I was Eddie Moore. Nobody believed that I was genuinely saved. And everybody thought it was just a phase that I was going through. And nobody encouraged me. Except for Jerry Hoover. Jerry Hoover was a hippie. Not a hipster with skinny jeans and pour over coffee, but a hippie with like real long ratty hair and actual tears in his jeans. And he was saved out of the Jesus movement. And when he got saved, his wife left him. And so he was left to raise his two kids by himself. And in Western Pennsylvania in the 1970s, we didn't have any such thing as a youth pastor. But he was the 1970s Western Pennsylvania equivalent of a youth pastor. And you know what he would do? He wasn't paid by the church at all. What he would do is, here we go, he would meet with me and he would pray with me and he would pray for me and he would love me and he would rebuke me and we would spend time together in the things of God and he was the only encouragement that I was receiving. I can remember one particular instance. I, I, can, I can remember the date. It was Thursday, February 2nd, 1978. I was a wrestler in high school. And that night I was going to, to wrestle a guy from Brockway. His name was Varachetti. His dad was a garbage man. And I was, I, I was, I was horrified. Like I, I, was, I, I was really scared about this wrestling match that I was going to have. And so I picked up the phone and I dialed it. And I called Jerry at work. And I said, I am so nervous. I am so distraught. I have this wrestling match tonight. What can I do to calm my nerves? And he said, take your Bible and turn to John chapter 14 and read verse 27. So I opened up my Bible and I read the words of Jesus that said, Peace I leave with you. My peace give I unto you. Not as the world gives. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Now listen, if I were to meet Jerry today, I'm sure we would be in different galaxies theologically. And hermeneutically, that is just, like, he's, he's way off. Jesus in the upper room discourse was not thinking about a wrestling match that was going to be happening at the end of the 20, 20th century. I didn't know that. Jerry didn't know that. But I'm going to tell you what it did do. That for the past 45 years, when I have been at wit's end corner, or nervous, or distraught, my mind has gone immediately. 45 years, my mind has gone immediately to John 14, 27. But more than going to that text, what I learned from him is that when I am at the end of myself, it's not the text that I go to, but it's the Christ who said that. He encouraged me to look to Jesus. The doctrine of encouragement is a big deal. 
it, 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 it can have an impact for almost a half century. And so I'll close this evening by just giving you some practical points of application and then we will be done. How can we encourage one another? Number one, here we go, listen closely. Pray with one another. I didn't say pray for one another. You should pray for one another. You must pray for one another. But pray with one another. I spoke earlier of that fictitious story of Pastor Harris and the person that visited he visited in the hospital. But the truth of the matter is, uh, as a pastor, I have been in hospitals countless hundreds of times. And I always go in and I pray with the person. And quite frankly, I always kind of question, why am I doing this? Like, I mean, God is omnipresent. Can I not just pray for them from home? And, and, and I, I, I didn't think that what I was doing in visiting them and praying with them was that big of a deal until I myself was in the hospital. In March of 2011, I had a hip replacement. And like a fool, on the night before the hip replacement, I decided to watch a YouTube video of a hip replacement. You don't need to see that ever for any reason. <laughs> so I go into the hospital the next day, and as I am there in this little cubicle shivering, and, and, and I'm thankful that they ask you several times before they actually open you up who you are and what is being done, lest something else happen. And so I'm, I'm there in the cubicle, and a man walks in and he says, what are we doing today? I said, you're replacing my right hip. He says, great, would you point to your right hip? I point to him. He goes, great, very good. What is your name? My name is Ed Moore. Great, and where do you work? I work at North Shore Baptist Church. And the man said, oh, you're a pastor? I said, yes. He goes, hold on one second. He steps out of the cubicle. He looks at a nurse who is at the other end of the room. He motions for her, and she comes over, and he whispers to her, he's a pastor. And the woman, kind of like Moses, looking one way and the other, steps into the cubicle, pulls the curtain, and she comes over to me, and she says, Pastor, I'm going to pray for you right now. And she puts her hands on me and she leans down in my ear and she pours out her heart for me. And it was as if someone had taken a bucket of warm water and had poured it over my head and the peace of God that passes all understanding was guarding my heart and my mind in Christ Jesus as this woman, whom I had never met before, prayed with me. Brothers and sisters, you know one another. You are members of one another. It is one thing to look at someone and say, I'll be praying for you. It's another thing altogether to pull them aside and to go before God with them, praying with them. It is excessively encouraging. Here's the second one, and that is to give Gospel reminders. Give gospel reminders. Here's why I say this. I am a pastor. 
I am paid to preach the gospel. Sometimes I will preach a sermon and I will ask my family, well, how was the message today? And they'll say, it was pretty good, Dad. Except you forgot the gospel. Like, I'm being paid to preach the gospel under circumstances that are designed for the proclamation of the gospel. And sometimes I forget the gospel. In fact, even as Providence would have it, just yesterday I was teaching a class on hermeneutics to our discipleship group. I taught the class. Everything I said in the class was, was, was accurate. I'm confident that what I said was true. And we got in our discipleship groups, or our discussion groups afterward, and one of the men said to me, yes, but let's remember that in interpreting Scripture, it all has to be funneled through Jesus Christ, who said, search the Scriptures for in you have eternal life, but these are they which testify of me. And Jesus, who said in Luke 24, all things concerning himself on the road to Emmaus in the Psalms and in Moses and in the prophets about Jesus, I had forgotten to include Jesus. Now, if under the best of circumstances, we are forgetting Jesus... Remember what the great theologian Mike Tyson said, and that is everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. When life punches you in the mouth and you are struggling for your equilibrium, the first thing that you are going to naturally forget is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know what an encourager does? An encourager comes alongside you and says, okay, come on now, focus. I know that this is a tough situation, but remember... God loves you, and your sins are forgiven, and you're going to be in heaven, and you are joined to Christ, giving gospel reminders to one another when we are hurting is so very valuable. Three more. Greet one another. Greet one another. It's all over the New Testament. But this will all know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You have no idea the week that a person has had and how they are perhaps struggling with their health or struggling at home and they walk into church and no one speaks to them. Do you know how uplifting it would be just to come alongside that person and simply to say, I am so glad to see you. God bless you. I'm glad you're here. You don't have to go to seminary in order to do this. You should not pass another human being without speaking to them and at least greeting them. Two more, two more, and we're done. Number four, give practical assistance to those who are in need. Or as Paul writes, meet urgent needs. Or as John the Baptist said, let him who has two give to him who has none. So, it's 1991, I'm living in Columbia, South Carolina, my wife is pregnant, I am working, renting apartments for $5 an hour, um, I'm driving a 1976 Buick Skylark, a, a car of which my father said, Ed, take that car, wash it, and then burn it because it's not even worthy to be burned in the condition it's in now. It was a bomb. 
We were poor. We had nothing. Anna's pregnant with our first child. And as I am at work, one of our deacons, a man by the name of Eric Slagle, calls me up and he says, I need to borrow your car. He comes by at his lunch hour, takes my keys, drives my car off the lot. I'm not thinking anything of it, except how hard up do you have to be to borrow my car? (laughs) An hour and 15 minutes later, he comes back and there are four new tires on my car and I weep. We couldn't afford new tires. We were eating government cheese and government rice, and we were struggling to get by. That was 1991. That is 32 years ago. 32 years ago, that memory is still in my mind. I am still being encouraged 32 years later. Friends, God loves a cheerful giver. If you have and you know that someone needs, John says, how does the love of God abide in you if you see your brother in need and you don't help him out? You can be a great encouragement simply by meeting a practical need. But everything that I have said up to this point is really just the preface to the sermon. Here's the main thing that I want to tell you this evening, and I close with this. Here's your point of application. If you see something, say something. Encourage one another and build one another up. You need to be talking to one another. If you see the grace of God at work in another person, you should say something about it. Several years ago, I'm at a Bible conference, and there's a young man, he gets up, he speaks. He does a really good job. Uh, I send him a text. The text says, good job, Uh, I was really edified by that, I'm proud of you. And I sent it. That was it. Nothing of it. Six months later, that same young man and I are at another Bible conference. He teaches again. And once again, he does a very good job. At the conclusion of his lesson, I send him a text. And the text says, wow, that was great. I really learned a lot today. Fantastic. I'm proud of you. Send. And he comes up to me after the second text and he says, you have done this to me twice. He said, the first time you did it, I showed the text to my wife And both of us wept and cried. He said, I have never had a man tell me that he was proud of me. And now you've done it twice. And I'm thinking to myself, why not? Why hasn't anybody in his church ever come up to him and said, you are doing a good job? And I'm not talking about flattering a person. I'm not talking about coming along and building the person up in the flesh. But what I'm saying is you identify the grace of God that is at work in someone. Where that person would be. They might be in prison. They might be in hell. They might be dead. They might be in a gutter somewhere if it wasn't for the grace of God. But the grace of God has taken that person and now they're using that person. What are you saving your words for? Why are you not 
acknowledging the goodness and the work of God in that individual and obeying the command which says, encourage one another and build one another up. Your pastor did not ask me to say this. But would it really be too much for you if he faithfully stands in front of you and he opens the book and faithfully gives you an accurate message from the word of God, would it be that hard for you to say, thank you, I was blessed by that. You see a woman walking into church. She's raising these kids spiritually by herself. Her husband is who knows where. She comes walking in with a kid under each arm. Would it be that difficult for you to say to her, Sister, I don't know what's going on in your life, but I want you to know the fact that you made the effort to be here today and you got these kids here today, that is a blessing to me. Someone that you know that is struggling physically, they're in pain, but yet they're making the effort to get to church. Sister, I don't know what you're going through right now, but I know you're hurting. The fact that you're here is a big blessing to me. We ought to be looking out among one another and we need to be obnoxious with our words such that we are building one another up. Why? In light of the gospel. You haven't been destined for wrath, but you have been destined to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we live or whether we die, we're going to be with him. And therefore, here's the command, Limerick Chapel. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Because it looks something like this. Christians are doing the best that they can in this discouraging world. And they've got their eyes closed. And they're saying, Marco... Marco, you know what they hear? Nothing. Marco, Marco, you know what needs to happen? These people, as they are doing the very best that they can to make their way through this life, who are saying, Marco, they need to hear a chorus of Polo, Polo, come on. You're doing a good job. Nope, a little bit off to the left. Come on, now keep coming, keep coming. Encourage one another and build one another up. Don't you hate it when a football coach takes his timeouts into the half or to the end of the game without using them? Why are you going to take the breath that God has given you and not use it voluminously to encourage one another and build one another up in light of the gospel. All right, I went a lot longer than I was supposed to, uh, but that's all I've got.